Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. back to the Essential Films Podcast, a podcast devoted to the discussion of the greatest movies ever made or the Essential Films. I'm Adolfo Acosta, and I am joined by my co-host, not Ric Flair, but Mr. Mark Espinoza. And you wrestling fans will understand the reference in a minute. On today's episode, we will be discussing 2001, A Space Odyssey. But before we get to all that, how are you doing, Mr. Mark? Hey, what's up, man? And uh, you were supposed your voice was supposed to get progressively worse as you saying that, you know. But that's true. Uh, but uh, we'll get to that later. Um, so yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey today. Uh, it is kind of a uh, kind of a huge undertaking because this film is kind of um, famously not incomprehensible, but famously uh, left to interpretation, especially the last thirty minutes or so. Um, before we get to all that, can what is your experience with this film? So, I have like two different experiences with this because the first time I I watched it, and I've decided I'm not really going to count this as my first time 
because I kind of I watched it when I first bought. They had this uh, Stanley Kubrick Blu-ray set that came out. I think it went around two thousand seven. I think two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I might be a little off on the year, or it might have been like a little early, maybe like oh five, oh six. I'll I'll actually look up later on what year that set came out. But it was like the first time that that the Stanley Kubrick films. Uh, we're going to be released on um, on Blu-ray from Spartacus all the way to Eyes Wide Shut. Like, it was a big deal. So I actually picked this set up for about 75 uh, gold coins. Uh, and uh, it was a good investment on my end, actually, because I think the original price was like 120 or something. And uh, it was one of those Amazon deal of the days. So I got it for like 75 bucks, which was pretty good considering all the films you get. And as I went through the set, eventually, obviously, I came uh, across 2001. And, I mean, I got through half of it, and I, I just was bored out of my mind. Like, I was still in my early stages of uh, me becoming the cinephile I am now. So I wasn't really uh, I wasn't really all too interested in what was going on because it was almost like it was a very loose plot. Like, really, nothing was really happening. Like, you had to really um, kind of just sit and stare at, like, these nice images and, like, this – you know, classical score, and it was it, it wasn't holding my attention. So I kind of sat through half of it, shut it off, and I never really went back to it. That is until uh, this past summer when uh, they started releasing the uh, 4K restoration all over theaters, and Alamo Drafthouse was one of the theaters that was screening it. So I said, you know what? It's been about 10 years. Let me actually go back to this. Maybe I'll uh, I'll appreciate it more. And I don't know if – and I, by the way, I saw this at 10 o'clock at night, by the way. So <laughs> it's one of those things where I was almost afraid I was going to fall asleep again. Uh, but believe it or not, like I, I sat there. I heard the Ric Flair theme song play. I was pumped. I was ready for, I was ready for this movie. And I tell you, it was legitimately one of the – probably one of the most memorable cinematic experiences I've ever had. Not only did I appreciate this film more for what it was trying to do and Kubrick for what he was trying to do as an artist as well, I appreciated the cinematography more. I appreciated the ve- – it's still a loose plot, but I appreciated what he was trying to do with it and try to connect like the three eras and everything. Um, I understood the mo- the aspect of the monolith a little better this time around, and I just – I had a ball with this, and especially that – and, uh, and I, I wish, and I hate to say this, but I wish I had been on something near the end of the movie when we got all those, like, when he was, um, I think it was David, he was going through, like, the mountains and all you saw all those, like, pretty colors. And basically, like, the, you saw the whole color spectrum flash before your eyes for about five minutes. <laughs> I wish I would have been on something while I was watching that because I would have enjoyed it even more than I did. I was like, this is freaking trippy. Like, I'm loving this right now. And... Obviously, the final scene, which we'll get to with with the Star Child, was one of those things that oh, the Simpsons did it. I remember, <laughs> I remembered uh, that the Simpsons uh, did that joke a while back, and I had a good laugh at that scene and, and appreciated it uh, more for for what it was. So, again, I gotta say, I thank you to uh, the Warner Brothers or the people responsible for re releasing this, or it's MGM Warner Brothers, whoever released it. Um, because I don't know if I really would have revisited it had it not been for this restoration they did. And I'm sure glad I did because I went back and watched – after that um, scene in the theater at Alamo, I went back and watched it about twice. 
once just to kind of just for just for fun and then once to prepare for the show and i'm enjoying it more and more every time i'm watching it now because you 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 discover something else or it's like you think it makes sense but then like it adds another layer to it as you watch it again and then another layer that you didn't see it before and another layer is like it turns into a different movie every time you watch it and that's what i love about about 2001 right now it's that every time i see it it's like watching it for the first time because either you notice something different or you start forming these different theories in your head and it's like you've seen it for the first time and that's one of the, that's the magic about this movie every time you watch it it's, it turns into a different movie <laughs> Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, my first time was uh, watching this film was at a time when it was way too young for me to appreciate it. And I was maybe eight, nine, ten years old. And it was um, my dad or my mom were watching it uh, on on TV. On uh, They had rented it or they bought it. I can't remember what, what the case was. And I just remembered after like seeing the initial like space stuff like in the in the, in the middle I was like, I started to get really bored uh, by all the other stuff. And then, of course, and when I first came in, I, they were watching these, and I was just seeing these monkeys. I was like, what is this? And I just walked away. Um, and then I just kind of had this weird impression of the film for like a long time until I got to college where I, you know, I saw it again, this time in, in its full, you know, full glory. And I remember thinking, what? Because <laughs> um, that the I was like, I don't understand. So he's like an old man, and he sees a space baby. I don't, I don't get this movie. And then, uh, and then over the years, I just kind of kept going back to it and just started appreciating it more, especially uh, the actual directorial effort of in the cinematography and the visual effects. And and then I just st- slowly started to kind of appreciate it more and more to the point now that I'm like, okay, this is actually a masterpiece. Um, and yet to this day, I, I still don't have a firm grasp as to exactly what's happening in the, at the end, because the, the first two thirds of the movie are fairly, um, self, not self-explanatory. The first part of the movie is not really necessarily self-explanatory, but you at least know what's going on until it changes into the future. Um, but, but yeah, each time, kind of like you, each time I watch it, I pick up something a little bit different. Yeah, and, and again, I think that's what makes this movie so great, and that's just the magic of, of 2001, is that there's little things everywhere. Like, every time you watch it, you pick up something else, and you pick up something else. I don't think there will ever be a time where I'm going to sit there and not uh, discover something for the first time. Like, I think that's, again, that's what I think makes 2001 such such an endearing watch as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, before we get into the kind of the the meat and potatoes here. Um, 2001 Space Odyssey uh, came out in 1968. It was directed by uh, the man known as uh, Stanley Kubrick, who would go on to give us a lot of other kind of mind-bending, head-scratching films. Uh, it, was all, it was written by Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke, uh, cinematography by Jeffrey Unsworth, and it was stars uh, Keir D'Elia, Gary Lockwood, William Sylvester, and Douglas Rain, uh, who we just lost this past year, actually. Um, uh, it, Douglas Rain was the voice of, of Hal 9000. A um, little bit of background on the film. So the film first started, uh, the film first kind of, kind of germinate whenever Kubrick kind of in the mid-60s became kind of fascinated with the, the thought of uh, alien life or extraterrestrial life. But, you know, at the time, science fiction movies were really cheesy. Like they were not what 
what they are today where, you know, they're, even if there's um, not a lot of respect from like award shows or something, like they're not necessarily cheesy. They have a lot of special effects. They have a lot of uh, sometimes A-list actors, you know, whatever the case may be. They're not, they're not a joke anymore. But back in the 60s, they were kind of seen as a joke. Um, and, but so Kubrick didn't necessarily want to make something like that, but he did want to make a, basically a, uh, a well, a well-funded, uh, thought-provoking, uh, science fiction film. And he reached out to Arthur C. Clarke, who was a science fiction author at the time. Um, and, uh, Clarke and, Clarke and Kubrick basically co-wrote the, the film together, um, while Clark was writing the book, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Kubrick was writing the movie of the book. So they both kind of wrote them at the same time. Right. Which is kind of an odd uh, odd uh, thing to, to think about. Like writing a book and the script to the same book at the exact same time is kind of, uh, I don't know if people do that. Like I can't think of another time that it's ever famously happened or anything. Yeah, I'm sure it's happened a couple. I I, I could swear I, I maybe read something about a certain movie where the book was being written concurrently, but I can't really think of it right now. I mean, it it, it is still like a rare phenomenon, but it may have happened maybe like once or twice, like after that. But it it, it kind of escapes me who it was right now. Yeah, and, and uh, Clark um, Clark has a has a really good quote here. Um, that I that I wrote down. Um, whenever he and Kubrick were collaborating, Kubrick told him that he wanted to make a movie that uh, in, that um, signified man's kind of relationship with the universe and how man stacks up against the universe and and where his place in all of this is. And and Clark uh, Clark said that uh, quote he was determined to create a work of art which would arouse the emotions of wonder awe even if appropriate terror, unquote. Um, I think they kind of succeeded here because there, there are times uh, whenever I watch the film that, you know, it, it is, they do kind of present it in this kind of wondrous, awesome spectacle, but there are points where you're kind of, it's, I don't know, terror is the word, but there's, there's a sort of dread to what's going on. Right. Um, especially whenever uh, Hal, when we'll get to the plot, but when Hal kind of goes nuts and, uh, and uh, kills uh, Bowman, I think. Uh, he or Pool. He kills Pool. Uh, he they uh, there is kind of like a sense of dread and terror in the, during that sequence. Oh yeah, uh, I every time it, I remember. Um, I think the the very first time I watched, I never even got to that part. I had dozed off before then. But seeing this part in the theater, I what came over me was nothing short of dread watching this. And it's funny because I know that, um, again, going back to like, I always do on the show with the Simpsons, the Simpsons, I think did a Treehouse of horror episode with like their house became like basically, uh, how 9,000, but instead of like, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the guy who did the voice again? Uh, what's his Douglas name? Ryan. Uh, he, Yes, instead of Douglas Rain, it was Pierce Brosnan who did the like the Hal voice, um, and it was it's a very wacky episode for those who want to check it out. But um, upon research, I found out that was from two thousand one. I'm like, well, I don't remember seeing that in two thousand one because I never finished two thousand one at that point, <laughs> right? So, uh, so basically, when I saw, I got to this part in the film when I was watching it in 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 the theater last summer, like 
nothing short of dread came over me. It was one of those things where it was like, holy shit, like, it, like it's it's gotten real now. Like this shit's about to get real. And I felt so bad for Poole and then poor David <laughs> trying to get back into the ship. And uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But it was like it's it's watching it now. It's it's still such a thrilling, uh, thrilling like five ten minutes. That whole that whole set piece. Yeah, and the, I think it's a little longer than five minutes, but it is still, it is kind of like a edge of your seat kind of thing, which is interesting because the whole movie is so deliberately paced and then all of a sudden you get this, not quite an action sequence, but like a, a suspense sequence. And you're just like, you're just kind of like, oh my God, what's happening? Um, and it's even more amplified because uh, it's basically there's no sound because they're in space, right? And then whenever you get the sound, it's a much more like, it's very jarring. Right. Um, According to Kubrick, uh, the novel and the the film do initially kind of uh, diverge, and they they're not they're not the same because while they were wrote while while they wrote them together at the same time and they collaborated with each other, um, the the novel was finished much later than the script, uh, and you know, and when Kubrick had finished the script, uh, basically. Arthur C. Clarke had taken what was in the script and kind of expanded on it, and you know it's a lot. They explain a, a basically a lot more in the and Kubrick leaves a lot more to the not necessarily to the imagination, but to the um, uh, to leaves more to just to discussion and to uh, an analytics uh, analysis right. uh, than, than Clarke does, uh, which I think is interesting because the, the movie is very um, it's a very visual film, and it also like just it does not explain anything to you. Exactly, and, and you took the words out of my mouth. V- very visual film. It's one of those things where he he gets his audience in a way because he's letting he trusts his audience to kind of take his images and infer what they will. And I think he's even gone on record in the past and saying that, well, yeah, there's a certain way to look at. There's a certain way that he envisioned the film, but there's really no wrong way to look at it. Like. It's all about the audience's perception, and with especially with some of these striking images, as we'll get through as we, as we uh, we talk about you know the film. Uh, there's a lot of uh, wiggle room there for people to come up with their own things, uh, and, and there seems to be a recurring theme to some of these uh, some of the imagery that he uses too, which we'll get to. Uh, and I almost think it's funny now because after basically seeing all of all of Kubrick's films at this point. And kind of seeing like what he likes to use for symbolism. Like when I when I watched this uh, last summer in the theater, and I started noticing, you know, he's up to his old tricks again. I just started laughing because it's just, it was trademark Kubrick, but I and I never really dawned on me until now. Yeah. It, it, so one of the things that I think he kind of leaves to your analysis, to your imagination, is a depiction of of alien life. Um, and there's a little bit of background on this is that uh, while he was researching the film, he, uh, he reached out to Carl, Carl Sagan, famous astronomer, uh, scientist Carl, Carl Sagan, asking, basically asking him what, how he thought he should portray the aliens. And uh, Sagan basically said, there, it's unlikely that, there, that if there's any alien life forms, um, they're not going to be humanoid. Like so, getting an actor to be in a suit is not going to work because it's it's he's, uh, according to Carl Sagan, it would 
quote, introduce an element of falseness. Um, and he and he said that they suggest kind of suggest an alien presence. And that's kind of what we get is we get a suggestion of an alien presence. Certainly the monoliths, the, the monoliths, <laughs> it's, hard, it's a hard word to say, yeah. uh, <laughs> suggest their presence. I never took them to be like some people think that the monoliths are the aliens themselves. I don't I don't think they are. I think they are tools or or um, uh, machines from the aliens, but I don't think they actually are the aliens. Um, but they, you certainly feel their presence um, without actually ever seeing them. Right, and, and it, that definitely comes across in the film as well. And uh, I agree with your assessment as well. Like the monolith, to me, is more of a way the aliens themselves communicate or pass on the knowledge, as, as we'll talk about, especially in this first part of the movie. Um, but just seeing the monolith itself, like you said, that should indicate enough that's, that their presence is so harrowing as soon as you see that. Like, you just feel like the alien's presence being there. So that works. Um, yeah, and, and it, 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 it's, you certainly get it in that last sequence uh, when, when Bowman is, when Dave is kind of in that Victorian era hotel thing. Um, and we'll get to what, there is somewhat of an explanation for that. Uh, that Kubrick said, and, and which is interesting, but I don't know if I, I hundred percent buy it because Kubrick is also someone who would screw with people. So I don't know if I necessarily <laughs> buy his explanation, but we'll get to yeah. that. Um, so I, I think that's unless there's any other um, pre-production stuff that you want to get into. I know there's a lot of stuff with the special effects, but. Uh, it, uh, I don't know if you want to get into like the actual meat of the 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 movie now. I mean, we could because we've been teasing it long enough. Like, okay. you know, we'll get to that. So let's uh, let's just dive right in. So this is going to be one of those situations. So like when we usually go through uh, uh, in, in other shows, when we go through the kind of the plot of the film, um, we kind of get into the kind of the, the deep into the plot, kind of go scene by scene. This is going to be a little different because the scenes in the, in, in these movies especially the first chunk of film are either very long or, or where not a lot of stuff happens. So we're going to kind of go through this a little bit by little bit. It's not, it's going to seem a little more abbreviated because there's when you look at and you write down the plot, not quote, not a lot of stuff happens, stuff happens, but it's from one point to the other. There's not a lot of stuff in between. Um, so we start off the film, uh, in millions of years ago, in uh, in a desert or, or like a savanna of some sort, I, I assume it's in Africa, and there are a bunch of uh, ape-like creatures. Uh, I don't know if they're supposed to be um, like the missing link or they're supposed to be Cro-Magnon kind of men, but they're basically we are led to believe that they are humans, uh, the the predecessors, right? Right, and they're acting like apes would act. They are just you know they're just kind of doing their ape thing, and it's and it's kind of funny because just a bunch of dudes in ape costumes, which for whatever reason I never thought about until only recently. I I, I don't think I ever thought they were act. They actually got apes, right? But right. I never actually thought about the fact <laughs> that they hired actors to be in ape suits. Like I don't know why I never thought about it. I just didn't. And not only that, they were very convincing too. They were so. convincing. They, whoever they, whoever they got, yeah, they were very good. Um, and they uh, so basically, 
you, for a good chunk of the stretch of the film, you just kind of see the day-to-day life of these these eight men. and Which is very underwhelming, by the way. Like, yeah, they're just sitting around, like, picking each other's fur. They're eating grass, living side-by-side side with, like, the little, I guess, the, the pig predecessors. Like, what are, I think, tapers, I think they're called or whatever, but... Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's very, uh, very boring life for them right now. So, and, uh, it all it interspersed with beautiful shots of like Africa, right? Uh, beautiful cinematography here. And then one day they wake up and there is a, just this big rectangular monolith. It's black. It's completely smooth, not necessarily shiny, but kind of like has like a, it's very, it's very slick, and there's no, there's no features on it, uh, and of course, there, you know, to the viewer, you're like, okay, this is something out of place. It's, just, it's this big rectangular thing in like prehistoric Earth, but uh, but to these apes, it's, it just completely freaks them out. <laughs> um, oh, well, 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 let's let's talk about how 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 we got to this point though, because you kind of skipped a big chunk there. That's so, true. so in that first. That first setting where, like, we're just, we're just getting to meet, like, the apes or whatever they are, ape men or, what, or whatever you want to call them. You know, it's it's very boring lifestyle they have right now. But And then they kind of bookend that very, very chillingly. You have, like, a leopard jump out of nowhere and attack one of the apes. And basically, it cuts to black, but it's inferred that, like, you know, the, the leopard eats him. It's a, it's a very sad moment. And it's, like, it's one of those things where when you first watch it, like, well... Shouldn't the ape kick his ass? Like, what's going on here? Well, Kubrick's trying to tell you that right now, like, they don't have the means or the tools to fight back. So right now they're just very they're basically defenseless. Like they haven't they haven't grown the intelligence to figure out how to fight back against a leper or or whatever. So it's I get the point he's trying to make there. Then right after that, that same like clan of apes are at a watering hole. And then this rival clan of, of apes basically chases them off. Like, they almost put up no fight. <laughs> and they just, like, get scared off by this other clan. And then that clan take over the um, take over the watering hole. So they end up, like, going into retreat. They hide in this, like, this little... It's, it's kind of like a cave or whatever. Um, and then that's when you when your scene comes up. Like, the next morning, they wake up. And the, that big, giant monolith is there. And they're all just kind of picking at it. Like, they, they're, first, they're scared. But then, like, as they get closer to it, they kind of start, like, dancing around it and, go- and acting like apes do. And, like, kind of, you know, making noises and kind of just, um, I guess, celebrating it. And that's when you know, okay, something's happening right now. We don't know what it is yet, but something's happening at this moment. Um, and then the kind of the lead, the, the alpha of the group, I guess, uh, realizes that if he uses a bone... From like a like an animal like the carcass of an animal like a like a leg bone or just a big friggin bone from from an animal right he could use it as a tool or a or more importantly a weapon uh to beat their kind of rival apes away from the watering hole um and you see it's kind of brutal when he first hits the ape and then he realizes what he did and then he just goes back and just whacks him again and then it just is like this disgusting, like display of brutality as he realizes uh, how to use the, the how to use a weapon. And uh, this is kind of like so. The, the 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 movie doesn't explicitly tell us this, but this is basically what's happening here: is the monolith has influenced uh, 
this level of, I guess you want to call it humanity, to take kind of a, a, I don't know if you want to call it an evolutionary step, but kind of like an intellectual step forward um, as they move on to like the next stage of, of human progress, right? They discover how to use weapons, and they discover how to use tools, and you are meant to believe that this monolith has influenced that. And and I love that I love that scene um when when the when the ape uh you discovers the bone basically and what it can do and like it starts going into slow motion as he starts smashing like the skull that's on the ground and you hear Ric Flair's theme song playing and then um it's intercuts with like tapers like falling on the ground realizing that you know well I just say realizing symbolizing I should say that not only is, you know, they discover, like, a, a tool that they can use. Now they've gone from the vegetarian apes that we saw at the beginning to now carnivores. Cause right, and the scene right after that, you see them, like, a bunch of, like, taper carcasses, like, all over the place. They're eating the meat. So now they've become carnivores. Uh, so that's the next step in, I guess, like you were saying before, like, kind of their evolutionary process. And then we finally get to that final part of, of, this, uh, of this section where they return to the watering hole where that rival gang chased them off earlier. And then the alpha of that group basically kills the other alpha in that group with the, uh, with the bone. And because like, this is like, this is huge to them. Like nobody's ever seen, like, you know, they, nobody realized what the bone can do that, uh, of what is not only just a tool, like to get food. Now it's a tool like to kill somebody. Right. So, as soon as that alpha gets knocked knocked out for the count in, in pretty brutal fashion, I must say, um, pretty much like the the other clan members of that rival clan pretty much join the other one and worship this alpha um, because now he's pretty much asserted like his dominance over everybody just with this tool that he's discovered. Uh, yeah, and then of course, uh, as we get the famous uh, match cut, uh, probably probably. It's either between that or in Lawrence of Arabia when uh, Lawrence blows the candle out and it cuts to the desert. It's probably one of the most famous bits of editing in, in film history uh, where you see the, the he throws the bone into the air. You see it spinning and spinning and spinning. And then you suddenly cut to a similarly shaped space station out in space. Uh, not necessarily spinning, but kind of in the same position. But what I like about that is it's almost – and this is what I got from it. It's almost implied that you're literally jumping from one weapon to another weapon. You have the bone flying in the air, and then when it cuts into the future, you see that satellite kind of floating in the air as well, which I feel like it's implied that there's like a nuke in that. So you're literally jumping from one weapon to another. And I thought that was a very clever, clever thing for him to do. Like, you know, yeah – the the first men, quote unquote, like uh, grew the uh, grew enlightened enough to develop its first weapon, the bone, and now what four million years later or so, we have now a weapon in space floating in the sky. So that's that's pretty chilling right there too. And and before we move away from our uh, our our boys in the in the African desert millions of years ago, I did look this up. Uh, the chief ape man. Uh, or as he was called, Moon Watcher, was played by Daniel Richter, who uh, doesn't really have any other film credits, but he was an unknown street mine. So I guess that's why 
uh, got the role. <laughs> well, very good. Yeah, that makes sense. So there you go. Uh, so, like you said, we get we we flash cut millions of years later. We are now in two thousand one, uh, and which at the time would have been twenty. No, not twenty five years. Uh, how many years in the future would that have been for? For nineteen sixty eight, when this movie came out, would have been thirty three. Oh, thirty three no. years, yeah. Thirty three years should have been thirty three years in, in in the future for for the contemporary audiences. Um, and interestingly enough, now in our in in the two thousand one that actually happened, we didn't have a lot of this stuff. Uh, we didn't have obviously commercial space flight. Um, but some of this other stuff that we're going to get into is that they did kind of we did kind of eventually get to. Um, right, but uh, so we kind of see kind of an extended sequence of uh, Miss uh, Doctor Haywood Floyd, who has one of the best kind of movie names ever. I love that name, Haywood Floyd, uh, who is a um, what is he? He's like a what is his role? He's like a he's not an ambassador. He's what is he to the? Yeah, he's like a, like, a, like a scientist. Slash- administrator of some sort, I think. Yeah, Something like he, that. he works for the government, but he's, it's kind of unclear exactly what his job is. Um, and uh, he's on a commercial uh, space plane uh, by Pan Am, by the way. And we got to get this extended sequence of him on the uh, on the flight. You see, like, a stewardess uh, kind of, you know... And this is where you kind of... Kubrick shows off some special effects. And first of all, I don't think you'd ever seen special effects like this before, especially in sci-fi films. Uh, and you, you watch it now, it looks seamless. Now, we know they did it with models and, and, and you know, rear projection and things like that, but it looks just as good or better than, like, modern CG does. You know, it, it, there's no... I don't see any... When you look at those spaceships, I don't see any... I don't see the scenes. You know what I mean? It, it looks good. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a an interesting sequence. Like, you first you have like the sequence on the on the uh, shuttle or plane. I was gonna call it the plane right now. I guess it gets it's a space shuttle. Let's just call it that. You know, with the uh, with Floyd. You know, you see the um, you know, the pen is floating, and they have to turn on like the um, like the the gravity boost or whatever, so they can like walk normally. You know, it, it's interesting. And then you kind of go from that to kind of it just kind of intercuts for a while with like the the um the Pan Am spaceship kind of going to its destination. It docks with the um with the other um I guess it's I don't know if it's, like, it's I don't know if it's a space station, but it docks with it. It's and then you see station. like the it's a space station, right? So then and then you see the smaller ship that takes Floyd all the way to um I guess to another station or whatever. And again, here we go with Kubrick with his phallic symbols. <laughs> I, I caught this. I caught this in the theater right away because again, this is trademark. He he loves his phallic symbols for some reason. So, uh, and this isn't the first um first time we're gonna see uh one of the uh one of his uh, uh copulatory act symbols um that they, they kind of sp- uh, sprinkled throughout this film in different parts. But this is like the first time we we see it when the when the spaceship docks. Um, and then we see like the smaller ship trying to go toward the the other station. It's almost like the again, not to get too graphic, like the sperm fertilizing the egg. Um, and it's just like okay, like you're a little on the nose there, bud. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Well, I, I I wouldn't have I do not put it past Kubrick to do things like that. Um, yeah. So you know we get a lot of these cool special effect shots. 
Um, we get one, I think, is um, uh, of the kind of the stewardess kind of walking like upside down. You see her like walking upside down to get to like another part of the ship. Um, and that was done basically uh, by they built a giant, I don't know, like a giant tube. I don't know how else you would describe it. That was like a circular set, right? And then the tube would rotate and it had a camera fixed on its, like fixed in one position. And while the tube and the camera rotated, the actor would just kind of stay still and walk. And, but it, but when, as, as you filmed it, it's just the camera was rotating, it looked like she was going, walking upside down. Um, they did a similar thing in, I'm not sure if you've ever seen the movie Royal Wedding with Fred Astaire, but I'm sure you've probably seen the clips of him like dancing on the ceiling and stuff. Yes, that, I have. They did, the, they did it similar to that, where they just rotated the set and kept the camera in one place while the actor right. kind of danced around the rotating set. And they, they did the same thing here with, with this actress, um, which I think is just, uh, just kind of a neat way to do it. Um, again, modern, you know, they used the technology they had at their, at their time, and they did it all practically and looked great. Um, but back to the plot, uh, Floyd arrives at the space station uh after you know the implanting the egg um and uh, <laughs> that's right and you know it's it's what i love about it is because even though it's the future you know like it's 2001 uh it's still kind of some of the production design and costuming is still very like 1968 like haywood floyd looks like he's in like 1968 clothes, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, with like his blazer, like his checkered blazer and stuff like that. His haircut is kind of yeah. very 60s. Uh, and he meets up with some uh, colleagues uh, from the Soviet Union. Um, so like, it's interesting because in this future, and now in the 60s, we were in a cold war with the Soviet Union. Uh, they were not our, they were not an ally. But in this future, they kind of um, hint that they're, that the United States and the Soviets are are more friendly, but he still is like not answering any questions about all these mysterious goings on at the moon base, which is where he's going to go. Uh, that that's what he, he Floyd is there to go to the moon because of some mysterious happenings that's happening uh, happenings at the moon or the the United States section of the moon, um, and the Soviets are trying to grill him about it, and he's very. He's very cagey about it. Right. And, and just real quick, just as, as a little like kind of trivia, you know, right before this, there's a scene where uh, uh, Dr. Haywood Floyd uh, calls his daughter on Skype. Okay, it's not yes. really Skype, but it's it's basically like it's like a Bell Atlantic video phone, <laughs> as it would have been in 1968. I think discovered Skype by then. Um, and uh, that's actually Stanley Kubrick's daughter uh, oh, who okay. plays uh, Floyd's uh, Floyd's daughter. So that's. Just wishing her happy birthday, you know, telling her that he can't, unfortunately, can't be there at her party or whatever. Well, what does she um, want to say? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't remember. A bush baby. <laughs> what, what is it? A bush baby. That's right. The bush. Okay. Now, <laughs> I, don't know. I heard that and I thought that was wacky. So I don't know what they, what the, it was meant by a bush baby, but for whatever reason, it just sounds kind of like something a racist would say about somebody. I don't know. What it, doesn't it sound kind of like a like a, a, a slur? <laughs> like I don't know against who. Kind of. But it kind of yeah. sounds yeah. like a slur. <laughs> I can see that. Uh, anyway, 
But yeah, so it, it, that's kind of one of the things I wanted to talk about. Is like, it, while it didn't get necessarily everything right about the year two thousand one, it did kind of predict a lot of stuff. We don't have, uh, for example, commercial space flight yet, but they're working on it. I mean, we're getting very close to commercial space flight now. With uh, not only with uh, Elon Musk, but other companies are trying to like get that going. There's tests every day, you know, about and there people are working towards that goal. Um, he said Skype, video phone call. I mean, that we have that now. We're recording on, I mean, we're not using video, uh, but, uh, but we could if we wanted to. Uh, and we have, we have it on our phones. We can use FaceTime. So it, it didn't get it right on the date, but it did predict a lot of stuff, which I think is very interesting. Yes. Yeah, like, uh, when I saw this scene again, you know, when I watched this over the summer, I was first thing I thought of was Skype. You know, like, look at that. Like, that's one thing it's already predicted, which was neat. Um, so then we find out the real reason that Floyd is here. So he's he kind of goes, uh, he, he, you know, he's in a, he goes to like a meeting with all sorts of other government types and scientist types. And it's revealed that uh, the monolith that we saw at the beginning of the film uh, has kind of, they have found it buried um, in the in a crater of the moon. Uh, and it obviously does not look like it belongs there because, you know, again, this is this perfectly square, sorry, perfectly rectangular, black, smooth object. Uh, it does not seem like it should be there naturally. Um, and they had found it buried in, it buried in the moon. Uh, they had given some sort of fake story about, uh, there being an epidemic at the, at their base, uh, which is right. why the Soviets were concerned. Um, but, uh, that was really just a cover to... Um, uh, to kind of keep people off the off the scent, uh, so Floyd is basically there to kind of uh, go to, go to the go with a team of scientists to the monolith and kind of investigate and kind of try uh, try to study it. Yeah, um, he's almost like a, uh, he's almost like a cleaner in this in this case. Like you know, he's coming down. He's basically, basically telling everybody this BS cover story, you know, about what's going on in the moon. So that way nobody is really let into what's actually happening with that discovery of the monolith there. And he's basically, like you said, to just, you know, take the team and study it, find out what the hell it is. Um, and then we get another uh, another sequence where Floyd uh, is, is he's on like a little kind of transport to the moon. And again, a lot of this stuff is just kind of them showing the technology, right? So it's just, they're probably 10 minutes, five or 10 minutes of him just going to the moon from the space station. Uh, and when they get there, he and a bunch of these scientists are, you know, in their, in their, uh, in their uh, spacesuits, and they go to the monolith. And as they're like trying to like take pictures around it, all of a sudden you hear this like really high pitched uh, tone or like a, like a signal kind of like emit from, from the, from the monolith and it kind of just cuts to like the next sequence. Uh, but, but like, they're all kind of like holding their ears and, and just cuts the next sequence all together. Yeah. Uh, I almost thought that, uh, something was wrong with the audio when I first heard that, like, is this, is this supposed to be happening? And then when I oh, saw like, like everybody, everybody like wincing, the, like the, who went to the last Jedi thinking that the audio cut out. It, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I thought, Oh, this, this is Ryan Johnson all over again. But uh, but no, and then like it, it emits like that ear piercing, like el electronic screeching noise or whatever you want to call it. And you know, it's uh, they're all 
all of a sudden, like everybody are surrounding it. I think Floyd was one of the people there too. They're just mesmerized by it, and almost they become entranced with the monolith. And before you can even like really kind of your brain can even wrap yourself around what's going on, it just cuts to eighteen months later. Yeah, and before we get to the eighteen months later part, what I find interesting is that this film was released um, April second, nineteen sixty eight, um, but but. We didn't land on the moon until July 20th, 1969. So this movie came out a full year before United States landed on the moon. And it seems to like, it, it like kind of seems to like get a lot of what space travel is pretty spot on, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, that is. That is. Um, you could almost say that, you could almost claim that this kind of predicted us being on the moon. But I think by the time he was making this, like, that was they probably were already in the works. There. It was yeah. in the works, yes. Yeah, so it would have happened eventually. Um, but uh, but for a movie that's come out even before we even got to like know what you know moon travel is, you're right. It, it got a lot correct. You know, maybe he, he had uh, more conversations with Sagan than we thought. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and even then, what it was kind of amusing is that before we have even landed on the moon in real life, you know, when he's there on the moon. They're kind of treating it kind of like, yeah, it's just an everyday thing, you know, like, oh, there's a hotel there. Oh, he's just hanging out, having a call to his daughter, you know, whatever. Like, they, it's just it's like, it's like almost the standard thing to be on the moon. Uh, kind of reminds yeah. me of that Futurama episode, I'm sure you ever saw that, where the, the moon becomes like a, like a Disney World theme park. Yeah, <laughs> I know what you're talking about. Um, but yeah, so we cut 18 months later. And uh, we are on a new spacecraft, um, and I don't remember the name of it. Let me see if I have it in my notes. Uh, the Discovery One. The Discovery, yeah. Uh, which is going to Jupiter. Um, we see two uh, astronauts on it. The rest of them are in a kind of like these tubes that are like kind of like what you see in Alien, where they're in like uh, like hibernation or like uh, suspended animation. Um, and they, uh, cause you, it takes a long time to get to Jupiter. So, uh, it, you know, they, they kind of, what you assume is that they're like kind of rotating people on and off. And, uh, the ones that are currently awake are David Bowman and Frank Poole. And they are, uh, communicate with the onboard ship computer who basically controls everything. The, uh, HAL 9000, uh, they, and they just call him HAL. What do we remember what HAL stands for? Uh, I can tell you that. Hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm trying not to look it up. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember care. this. Uh, damn. No, uh, hu heuristic. And wait, wait. Was it? No. Okay. What is it? Because I, I think the first word is like heuristic or yeah, something. You're right. Heuristically programmed algorithmic computer. I don't think they there actually say that in the movie. That's probably from the book. Um, but that, that's what HAL stands for, H-A-L. Um, and it is a, uh, it is an artificial intelligence. Uh, it has a, per he has kind of a personality. He's, I don't know if you'd call him sentient, but he's aware of his existence. I guess that would be sentient. Um, uh, but he's controls everything on, on the, uh, on the ship kind of has a more or less kind of pleasant personality. Um, he, he he talks with the the science. He talks with David and Bull Pool. They he plays chess with them. Um, he gives them messages. You know, uh, 
tells them that their artwork is getting better, you know, like things like that. There, he he's, he seems like more or less a a pleasant uh, AI. Like if Siri was more chatty with you, it would be, or Alexa right. was more chatty with you. This would be hell. Want want to hear something funny? If you extrapolate the letters H A L, it becomes I I B M, bro. If you take the uh, if you yeah, take H A L and replace it with the next letter in the alphabet, it's I B M. That's that's I, wacky. And, and I, I heard I remember someone asking Kubrick about it and said, "No, that was just a coincidence." Uh, bull crap, dude! Bull crap! That is so intentional. <laughs> anyway, um. So Hal says he's uh, he's completely foolproof and incapable of error. Uh, during this kind of sequence, we also get a uh, like an interview with um, with uh, like a TV producer and uh, with Bowman and Poole, where they kind of just answer some standard, you know, science questions. Um, and it's kind of they kind of just go for an extended period where they just kind of show their daily life of them, you know, living on the space station. Hal kind of interacting with them. And then one day, it's weird. Was... It, it's weird. Uh, not to cut you off. It, it's weird though because, like, you see them like you know live their lives. They don't even really communicate with each other. It, it, it's 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 almost uh, like I don't know what the right word is to describe it, but like you're watching this, and it's like like they don't they almost seem like they're not even like friends. Like they're just like you know they sit down, they eat their TV dinners or whatever it is. You no, know, they watch this uh, this news report about them, and like they show almost no emotion. It's almost like they're as lifeless as like Hal. You know, Hal has more life than they do. That's, that's I think that's like the the juxtaposition he's trying to go for is that Hal shows more life than these two, you know, living human beings. And you know, that's that's pretty wacky too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And and we're gonna get a little bit more on uh, on Hal's behavior in a minute. Um, so one day, uh, Hal uh, tells them tell he's expressing a like uh, a concern about the uh, the nature of the mission to, I think, Dave. Uh, but before he kind of gets to it, he, he's, he goes, just a moment, just a moment, uh, and talks about a, uh, an antenna is kind of malfunctioning, and they have to go out and repair it. So they go out and repair it, and they get, get the antenna, but they, when they bring it back, they realize the antenna's fine. So they're not quite sure why Hal was reporting this antenna was... Uh, was malfunctioning when it's totally fine, uh, and the, the Hal just says, "Oh, just put it." He says, "Just put reinstall it and let it fail, so we can figure out the problem." But then shortly thereafter, they get a uh, they get a message from Mister Patrol that uh, another Hal nine thousand uh, was an error. Uh, I guess is what they said, and they think that their not Hal nine thousand could potentially uh, fail. Um, and Hal basically just attributes this to human error. Yeah, and then um, we start kind of seeing the beginnings of, okay, something's going to happen here. Because obviously, you know, th that A35 unit or whatever that satellite is, you know, turned out to be fine. Then, you know, they're going to wait for it to fail so they can diagnose the problem or whatever. But then after you hear about that twin computer that had that, that pretty much failed... You almost thinking, okay, does this mean that this house is gonna fail too? Like it's almost showing signs of being wrong. Like this can only get. It seems like it's only gonna get worse from here, and um, <laughs> and it does. Yeah. Um. So Bowman and Poole 
kind of uh, decide they need to have a little conversation away from Hal, which is interesting because they already know that him being in charge of the, all the all the systems on the ship and him having somewhat of a personality and having artificial intelligence, they need to kind of hide their discussion from him. So they get into like one of their little pods that they go outside to like, you know, fix antennas with and, and kind of travel, loop around on. Uh, and they uh, they turn off the audio in the pod so Hal can't hear them. And they, they, they make sure, it's like, Hal, can you uh, rotate the pod, please? And Hal doesn't do it. So they said it again several times. They realize, okay, he can't hear us. And they basically say, all right, I'm worried about Hal. Um, let's see... Um, Let's see if he's proven wrong. And if he is proven wrong, we will disconnect Hal and kind of just run the ship manually. Uh, but what we don't know is that what we do know, we find out, is that we get an, a POV shot from Hal, which is interesting, uh, of him following the lips of the, of the uh, Bowman and Poole. So we realize he's reading their lips and he knows what their plan is. Yeah, and uh, once you see that, it, because before this, uh, what I like about the dialogue before this is the fact that it's it's building up how to where it's he's seemingly becoming paranoid, um, and it's very subtle. Like they don't make it, they don't do it outright just yet. And even you know when when the when the shit does go down, he he it's he's Hal is just so calm about everything, and what I really like. Is it's a very slow burn to like you know how first detects quote unquote detects an error in the A thirty five unit you know and then when his um I guess when his integrity is questioned he kind of starts maybe he kind of starts retreating on into himself and you know we we think at this point we're thinking you know it's it's, it's very innocently you know oh you know Hal's probably just made a mistake you know even though that that nine thousand is supposed to be infallible or whatever they call it. It, it, it's it, he must have made a mistake, but obviously when you uh, when you put in yourself in the shoes of Poole and Bowman, you know you can't really uh, trust the unit that's already starting to show cracks. It's gonna make you can't trust it with your lives. But after that conversation, and you see like the like how the, the shot of how kind of looking at them, and you can infer he's reading their lips, and it's like okay, so he's already paranoid about. You know, they might disconnect him or whatever. So now seeing this, this is going to throw him over the edge. So you're wondering, okay, now now what's going to happen? Right. So, and it's at this point we get an intermission uh, because back in the day they did that. <laughs> and this movie is like <laughs> three right. hours. It's close to three. No, it's like two and a half hours long. And I guess back in the day with something that long, they, they, would, uh, they would give you an intermission. But obviously in... Did you get an actual intermission whenever you went to see an animal? Yes, we did. We got about, I think, ten minutes. That's so I got to, I got to stretch, uh, 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 go to the bathroom, and um, kind of just relax for a minute. I was in, I was in the front row watching this. And by the way, for those who don't have never been to an animal before, the front row is the only row that has recliners, like that we have the leg rests. So I was just chilling there, kind of just waiting for the movie to start. You know, it, it, what I like about um. Inter intermissions just seems so old timey, you know. Like, it's something that they really should bring back, especially for movies like freaking Endgame that really could use an intermission. <laughs> but, um, but for, remember the uh, did it for uh, Hateful Eight? Yeah, for the Roadshow version, I think got uh, got an intermission. Yes, which was which was awesome. And but of course, that's Quentin Tarantino. Like, he's a mark for that kind of stuff. So 
you know, it's, it's really something that they should consider bringing back, you know, especially when, when it's long movies, you know, like Endgame, like Hateful Eight. So, um, but, you know, I, this has it. Um, I think Lawrence of Arabia has one, I think. I don't remember. Um, uh, My Fair Lady had one, you know. So it's really, when I think of intermission, I think of, like, the classic films. And it's something that they really should think about bringing back. Ben-Hur definitely has one. Yes, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so then we uh, we cut to the, after the intermission, we have uh, uh, Poole uh, is outside uh, the space station. He's on a spacewalk, and he's attempting to, like, uh, put the, the, the antenna back. And Hal, seizing his opportunity, cuts his, uh, his, his, uh, his hose, his uh, air hose, and that kind of not only disconnects him from everything, it, it obviously uh, he loses all oxygen and it sets him adrift into space. And this is such a terrifying sequence because you see this guy, this lone little orange guy in the middle of all this blackness just spinning out of control uh, as, he's, uh, as he's basically dying. Like he's, he's suffocating and he's like being sent off into, in like, into space in the middle of nowhere. It's such a kind of crazy scary moment so one of the things that i actually one one of the regrets i have in my life right now is in 2017 i don't know if you remember this um alamo did like a a year-long tribute to kubrick where every quarter they showed one of his movies you know the first one they did was um clockwork orange and that was actually my the very first time i ever went to alamo in brooklyn was to see clockwork orange uh, the second one was 2001. Now, I didn't get to go to that screening because I think I was in Orlando for WrestleMania when they were showing it. So I didn't get to see it there until last summer when they did the 4K restoration. Uh, but in conjunction with like these release, these quarterly releases, they would, you know, Mondo, which is, you know, Mondo and Alamo are, they're owned by the same company. Uh, I think it's, it's called Draft House Films or whatever. Uh, they, um, released t-shirts to go along with these releases and one of the t-shirts and, and I, I i fell in love with it as soon as i saw it and i never bought it and now it's sold out on the website it's basically a, a all red t-shirt and on the on the center it just says computer malfunction on it just like the screen in the movie it's such a cool t-shirt and i wish i had bought it but now it's too late <laughs> i even tried to ebay this and i couldn't find it so um, whoever has that t-shirt like lucky you because that's an awesome awesome t-shirt <laughs> Very simple, but like for those of for the for the 2001 marks, it's like it's awesome, you know. And if uh, if someone's listening to this and has it, he Mark's willing to buy it for me, yes, worn and all, bro. Um, so uh, Dave goes out basically to to rescue pool, and while he's out doing that, and one uh, Hal starts turning off all the life support for everybody in suspended animation. So at this point, it's the, it, like, obviously he did something evil when he, when he killed off uh, Pool, but now it's like, it's not just, now it's no longer like revenge. It's like, I have to destroy everybody. And he, and it's such a creepy sequence because he, he, he turns off the life support and then, then you're just sitting and looking at a computer screen and seeing every one of their life support functions go down. You see, like, heart rate go down. You see oxygen levels go down. You see metabolism go down until everyone just flatlines. And it's really creepy. Yep. Uh, yeah, the, 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 the murder 
first spree of Hal has begun at this point, and it's yeah, it, it's very chilling. So the only one left alive is uh is Bowman, and Dave, and he uh he comes back in his little his little pod carrying Poole's body, and uh, he, when he gets there, still not realizing that Hal is the one who did this, uh, says, "Open the pod bay doors, Hal," which is one of the most famous lines uh, of the film. Oh, yeah, yeah, here, and, here we go. Yeah, and, he, and, and then the, the second the second most famous line of the movie is, "I'm I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that," and Hal refusing to let him in. Uh, Bowman again repeats it, and still, that's when Bowman realizes Hal did this. Hal is the one who did all of this. Um, and he, he, and this is what's great about this film because there's not a lot of dialogue and it's so visual, you have to just kind of pay attention to what's happening. Like, there's nobody who like tells you what Bowman's about to do. You just have to watch him and understand what he's about to do. Um, he lets go of Poole's body, lets him float out into space. And kind of, I don't know how you would even describe it. He goes to the airlock and tries to, like, he goes to the airlock and kind of blasts himself out of his pod in order to get into the airlock and then turn off the, and then, like, close the door on the airlock. It's like a one in a million kind of chance for him to actually Yeah, it's like a super risky move, you know? Exactly, like one in a million, like you just said. And it's such a cool sequence to watch. I don't know how they filmed that. I should have probably looked it up, but, like, because you see him blast out of the thing, and then you see his body just whip around the airlock before he finally gets. I'm assuming he did it with wires, but it still like, it looks so good, like him just black, like bouncing off off different walls before he finally gets to the panel that like can can, uh, can close the door. Uh, and then and it's so and the sound is the sound design is excellent here because while he's doing that, you see the explosion of the, of, of him coming out you see him bouncing around and, and you hear nothing because in space there's no sound and as the door right. closes and we get and we get oxygen into the airlock then we all of a sudden we start hearing sound and then we just hear like the this like alarm just blaring and blaring and blaring yeah and um what what i uh what I really liked is right after this, when he basically goes on his uh, his revenge march to go disconnect Hal, I'm, I'm like right behind them the whole way, like, yes, Dave, do it, like, do it, like, kill this, this bastard, you know, it was... Uh, just like, what do you like, think and, you're and, doing, Dave? And he just says that had badass strut to him too. It was, what what great like it, it's all body language. Like what great acting here too. Like he just like starts walking all like badass to the uh, to the chamber. And you know he starts uh he starts pulling out like how circuits and it's what a great moment what a great moment this is. Look, Dave, I can see you're really upset about this. <laughs> exactly, and then when I and honestly then think becomes, you should sit he down, a cowardly heel, and, bro, and take a stress pill. <laughs> he becomes Ric Flair when he gets on his knees and, and begs like he always does. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's a great scene, and then so we see him, we see Bowman basically go into. Like the the main like I don't know what you'd call it like the processor the the mainframe the hard drive whatever you want to call it of Hal and Hal, Hal knows what he's about to do and 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 Bowman's like I'm gonna disconnect everything here and it's such a beautiful I have actually have a shirt of this of this shot of him like kind of floating in the middle of all this like red as he's as he's about to uh, un, uh basically uns like like just take out all like the I think it's like hard drives. I don't know what it is, like the circuits or whatever that like controls Hal. He's like as he's like pulling them out 
That's such a great sequence, and you can hear. I have that exact shirt, bro. I think that's one of the uh, Mondo shirts that they released a couple years ago. I, don't I think, think it's, it's a called. Mondo shirt. I bought it. I bought it online. I don't think it's Mondo. Are you sure? Because yeah. if, it's, if it's that scene in the in red, right when he's floating in like the 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 data room or whatever that is, right? Like, well, I'm gonna find it now on the site. Well, why you keep talking? I'll find it on the site. I'll link it to you. If this uh, is the same shirt, then I have it. It's called Daisy. Oh no, but there's no text on it though. No, 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 no. There's no text on it either. But like, they just oh. call the shirt Daisy. Oh, okay. Um, so as he like, as he is like deactivating him and, and like unhooking him, not only do you hear his speech start to slow down, you hear like his fear in his voice, which is such a like unnerving thing to hear this like computer express fear, and it starts to like just losing all of its like functions, uh, and it's like. Dave, I can feel my mind going. Dave. And then it yeah. reverts. Uh, he reverts back to like his first program, which is to sing that Daisy song uh, yeah. that, I, that I sang at the beginning. Daisy, Daisy. <laughs> and then after he completely unhooks everything, uh, a pre-recorded message comes up of, uh, I think it's Dr. Floyd, Haywood Floyd. And he basically says, um, the true objective of the mission, I forget what, what Bowman and Poole thought they were doing. Uh, I think they talk about it in that interview with the TV guy, and I don't remember what they say. Um, but the, it, what the true mission actually is, is to investigate a signal from, June, from Jupiter uh, that, is this, that uh, came – wait. Did it come from the, one, the monolith on the moon, or did the – or did Jupiter send it to the monolith? I can't remember which which it is. I think it was the monolith sent the signal to Jupiter. That's why they were going to Jupiter to trace the signal and see what, what was going on with that. I think okay. that's what it was. Because I, I always thought it was the monolith sent it to Jupiter. And they went to investigate what it was going, like what it was going to, what it was sending it to. I don't know. Right. Um, so... That either way, I can't. I don't remember which one, which one it is. But either way, there was a signal, and it was you know they traced it to Jupiter, and that's what they actually were there for. Bowman and Poole did not know that. Uh, I'm not sure if the crew knew it, but Hal knew it. Hal was the Hal definitely was was in the know when Bowman and Poole weren't. Um, and there's, and then you you see another monolith kind of floating out in space near Jupiter. So Bowman kind of gets in his little pod. And goes to investigate it. Now here is where I never quite understood what the hell happens. <laughs> um, the uh, oh, you sent me. Let me see this. This. Uh, so you're gonna see my favorite, my, my favorite shirt there right now, as well as the Daisy shirt. And we'll put a link to this in the in the in the quote. Um. Okay, it's this scene, but it's different. Because it's not the, the it's I don't it's not um, vertical like that it's horizontal. Oh, okay. So as if you're looking at it on a on a movie screen, and I and the, the, the this shirt, is the one I have the Daisy. Belt. It is black though. It is a black shirt, but it's like it's like it's the exact same thing. So I don't I, maybe I got a like a bootleg. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Um, but it is well, pretty much the exact same sequence, yeah. um, but flipped. I see, but look at that computer malfunction. Like I marked that when I saw that, dude. And I, now, and now it's all it's sold out now. So, 
oh well, whoever has that, lucky you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so this is where I never quite understood what was happening. So upon researching, like going online and looking it up, what I understand, what I now understand happens is while he's in his pod, the the it gets pulled into uh like a wormhole or something called a stargate okay and that takes him like across space but before i didn't understand that's what was happening i just saw i just knew that he was in his little pod and then all of a sudden he was in this like crazy light show um but that so that so that is technically what is happening he's in his little thing he's trying to investigate the monolith but instead he gets pulled into like a, a worm I, they call it the stargate like i, I always thought of it as a, like a wormhole and he like just goes all through space and he sees all sorts of like alien landscapes and strange colors and like uh crazy images and kaleidoscope kind of stuff going on and uh, different uh, like animations and, and all sorts of craziness right uh, and this segment is like ten minutes long, by the way. I, I yes, time yes, like it is. ten minutes long. They just sit there on all of this stuff just happening at you, and it's kind of crazy. And this was what I was talking about earlier, where like you see all the pretty colors kind of flash on the screen. You see the entire, almost the entire color spectrum flashes in front of your eyes throughout that 10 minutes and it's almost like i wish i was on something so i could enjoy this even more than i am right now you know you know it's, it's funny to those... say that because uh there's this kind of urban myth or not urban myth but like uh, i don't know if it's an urban legend or not but it's it's kind of like this kind of story that people talk about this film is that when initially it came out you know it, it had some kind of modest success in the theaters um, but then people started going, more people started going to it, like on like word of mouth. And some people think the reason is, is because hippies started to kind of go into this movie as like a, a counterculture kind of thing. And they'd go in high, <laughs> um, they basically for, for all the, for, for the, uh, for the Stargate sequence, uh, and and it kind of became this word of mouth of like people calling to go see the show high, and it kind of got a resurgence uh, from just people doing that, which I think is kind of amusing. <laughs> Tripping out from uh, from the from the Stargate sequence, yeah, I can imagine that one hundred percent. Even if it's not true, like I, I I'll believe it, you know. <laughs> and I'm gonna say something that's gonna sound insulting, but it's I'm, I don't mean it as an insult to the movie, um, but almost. Every time I watch this film, I fall asleep during this this sequence. And I don't and I it's not because I think it's boring. It's because it kind of hypnotizes me. And it like right. it like lulls me to sleep. I don't know what it is. Like it kind of like just staring at it, like just kind of makes my eyes tired and like I can't help but kind of doze off during that sequence. I always wake up like right like right before like we get into the next sequence, but it's always it's like this it just I can't actually look at it and stay awake. It, it, it's this weird, it's this weird mental thing with me in this movie. And here's, well, here's now my current take on it, basically, because and and this I just discovered upon just last watching it. There's a there's a theme. If you really uh, if you really want to examine what Kubrick's going for, it almost seems like there's this theme of life. When it comes to this movie, right? 
And it all starts, you know, not only with the dawn of man, but then like that sequence right after, like I was talking about earlier, you know, with with the phallic symbol, you know, penetrating the egg and like the little sperm flying to the space station, you know, you know, um, conception. Right. And then you go all, all the way up to this point in the movie now. And it's almost like pool, not pool of Dave is um being reborn like this whole passage through the target almost seems like it's a rebirth he's passing through the birth canal in a way and he's seen all these wacky things you know on his way to being reborn which eventually i think the film implies he does when we get to that scene in the little room with the bed and all that and it just kind of crescendos in this big theme of rebirth and it, it it's almost like I'm I'm trying to find the the words to properly describe it. it, it it's a little hard to, but um, you kind of see different images. Like as you're going through, quote unquote, this birth canal, right? You're starting to see like all this other like I I don't want to say strange stuff, but it's you know just stuff that kind of takes you back. Like you see like the, like nebula explosions. You see like I don't know. Um, constellations bursting like all these bright stars like it's a very colorful sequence as we already alluded to you know all these desolate landscapes filled with like purple and green you know and um but as you as we kind of ease back into i don't want to say reality but as we kind of ease back into i guess some sense of normalcy you kind of see like this final it cuts to bowman's eye you see like this little blinking in his eye right you know and then like the normal colors kind of start to return you know and it almost feels like you went through like a seizure in a way, right? <laughs> um, and finally, when we get to this room, as we're going to talk about in a minute, it's like, you know, he went through the birth canal. And now after what unfolds here, he's completely a new person. He's completely reborn. And as you and if you follow like kind of Kubrick's symbolism, as you go from the beginning, you know, at the space station all the way up to now this point in the film, it's a, it's basically this a, a circle of life in a way from, you know, copulation to conception to rebirth, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, I totally, I totally see that. And that's a, that's a very, um, that's a very keen observation, I think, and uh, analysis of, of, of the end. Um, especially what we're going to get into now, which is the very kind of mystifying final sequence. Uh, as as you said, he like blinks his eyes, and suddenly like you're in like normal quote unquote normal color, and he's despite he finds himself in a bedroom, and not just like any bedroom, but and I looked this up the the style of this kind of room is the Baroque style. So like this kind of old timey European kind of style, like very like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like an, um, uh, like higher class, like uh, uh, like kind of more regal kind of kind of style. But it's all in like this very bland white uh, featureless room with just this like fur like this like baroque furniture everywhere. Right. Which is odd enough because he's still in a spacesuit. So you're wondering, okay, is he dreaming this? Is he actually here? What is this? As he walks and he's like looking through, he sees uh, an old man eating dinner. The old man uh, drops a fork, I think, 
And uh, as he drops the fork, he looks back and you see that it's Dave, but much older. And then when you switch to his perspective, the astronaut's gone. So now you're following this old man. And uh, as he's, you know, sitting there eating dinner, uh, he, I think he breaks a glass. And after he breaks the glass, he looks over to the bed. And there he is again, but is an even older man dying. And as he's in there dying, he, reach, he looks out and at the foot of bed. There is another monolith. He reaches for the monolith. And this is what I never understood. Does he transform into this fetus? That's what I, uh, that's what I think it is, right? He transforms into this glowing fetus. And uh, they, call, they call the star child. And then we see it floating into space uh, by Earth. And then the movie ends. Now, that doesn't make any sense just looking at it. <laughs> You're telling me. It's like I'm, I'm watching this in the theater and I'm sitting there. Well, first I said, oh, The Simpsons, right? But then when I tried to connect it to the movie, I'm just like, what? <laughs> it's just one of those just mystifying scenes. Like, like did he literally go from, like, you know, the, the young, you know, Bowman to old man Bowman to now reborn giant star baby Bowman, you know, it's like, like, how does that work? You know, And what does it mean? Um, I still haven't quite figured that part out yet. Um, I don't know if I ever will, but um, I'm going to make damn sure I have fun trying to figure it out in the meantime. But uh, um, so it's just hard not to think of the Simpsons though, when I see that now. So here is what Kubrick has said about that ending. Now, Kubrick, I want to put, I want to say this before I, before I'm going to quote it because I have it, I have it completely copied and pasted from the quote. And I'm, before I read it, I want to, everyone to li here listening to take this with the biggest grain of salt you could find, because I honestly don't think Stanley Kubrick, who was known for being kind of enigmatic, not just in life but in films would actually blatantly tell you exactly what's happening here. I think he was only saying it to whoever was interviewing him to screw with them. But that said, this is how <laughs> he explains it. Quote, the idea was supposed to be that he is taken in by godlike entities, creatures of pure energy and intelligence with no shape or form. They put him in what I suppose you could describe as a human zoo to study him. And his whole life passes from that point on in the room. And he has no sense of time. It just happens as it does in the film, end quote. I don't buy the zoo explanation. I think <laughs> this is him screwing with us. I really do. Yeah, I, it, it almost seems like too simple of an explanation for it to be like the real one. So, yeah, I think he's he's so messing with this guy right now. And again, with, with as... um. I guess as artistic and kind of like you said, as enigmatic as he, as his reputation is, I find it very hard to believe that like this is the explanation for it. Who knows? It very well might be, but just just the way he structures them, just the way he 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 makes movies, it's almost too it's almost too simple for it for that to be the true answer. But again, you know, everything with this movie, like I don't think we'll let will ever really have the true answer. It's really based on all of our perceptions, our individual perceptions.
Now, that being said, um, apparently the book is a lot more straightforward. And if you want, and there's some explanation in the book. Now, I'm going to go into it here. Now, I always think that you should, even if a, a, a movie has source material, whatever you see on the screen is what exists, not what the source, not where the source material comes from. But if you want some context of where all this came from, here's some context. The book is more straightforward, and apparently it basically literally says what the monoliths are. And the book says that the monoliths are a tool by a, um, created by aliens uh, that, um, that have evolved to a point where they are just energy. And they go to different galaxies or worlds to help uh, the inhabitants of that world to the next evolutionary step. Um, so if we watch the film, that's very obvious in the beginning with the apes, you know, because th it takes us to the next evolutionary step. Um, but then when you see it at the end, it's a little less obvious. So is, is Dave transforming into the giant star child? Is that him taking, hit, taking an evolutionary step? Is that what that is? Um, his, is that what humans are supposed to be? Is this energy form? Because, I mean, he is being reborn, like you said. So is that what this is? Uh, or is it something else? Hmm. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I can't answer that question right now. But I'm excited to. I'm excited to try. It's one of those things where just all these questions that we still have just makes you want to go watch the movie literally right now at 1230 at night. So, um, and again, that's just the power of, of the film. You know, it's just like the images you get and kind of the inference you get from, from this. It, it's always going to be different each time from each person, too. Uh, so, like, all this really does, like I said, is just make me want to watch the movie again. Just to kind of see if I can, maybe this time I'll figure it out, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't really know. I, I like that explanation that it is the next step in human, human evolution. But again, it just seems, I don't, again, I don't buy that this is a zoo. I think that's bullcrap. Um, I don't, what I still, I, I can still say, like, I, I get the whole, okay, it's the next step in human evolution. What I'm trying, I still can't wrap my head around is when he sees himself as an old man, like, how is he seeing himself as an old man? How is he, you know, how is it keep, is it because, like, time is, like, uh, is it kind of like in Interstellar where, like, time is, is like this, uh, you know, condensed thing, you know what I mean? Where, like, right. where yeah. you, you can encounter different things. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't figure it out. That's the only, that sequence to this day is still kind of mind-boggling. I can see what they're going for thematically, but literally I'm not sure what is happening in that sequence. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a nice little quote here. I don't know exactly where this is from. I it's it's I think it's from a book. Um, but this is what it says regarding like just not just this scene, but I guess how it kind of connects to everything. And it goes, and I quote <clears throat> The cyclical evolution from ape to man to spaceman to angel star child Superman is complete. 
Evolution has also been outwardly directed towards another level of existence, from isolated cave dwellings to the entire Earth to the moon, to the solar system to the universe. Humankind's unfathomed potential for the future is hopeful and optimistic, even though Hal had momentarily threatened the evolution of humanity. What is the next stage in man's cosmic evolution beyond this powerful, immense, immortal, space-journeying creature? The last lines of the book also echo the same sentiment. That he, quote, that he waited, marshalling his thoughts and brooding over his still untested powers. For though he was master of the world, he was not quite sure what to do next. But he would think of something. And I believe that's like the last line of the book. Um, but yeah, it's almost like, again, like this, like I was kind of saying before, like the so cyclical nature of not just life, but evolution as well. You're going from ape to man to just like this supreme star child like being. You know, like kind of you were saying also earlier, it's almost like the next evolutionary step, which is what the book implies. And I think maybe that's I think that's that seems like the um, the most logical thing that like the I guess the the narrative is going for at this point that the monoliths just, you know, all what all they're about is making sure that like, you know, these, you know, they traveling to different galaxies, making sure like these beings kind of unleash their fullest potential and upgrade to the next level and upgrade to the next level after that um as much as possible so that's probably i think this is this, this may be it then this may be the answer but like i said i'm sure maybe the next time i see it, I'll, I'll it'll hit me with something else that i haven't thought of but we'll see about that i mean there, there is so much to kind of unpack here that that one podcast is not going to be able to, to uncover but i mean you did in that thing you did in that kind of you you did kind of talk about one thing we didn't really touch on is how is as an artificial intelligence, he experiences uh, not jealousy, but anger, um, paranoia and fear. And what is, what is, what are they trying to say with that? Like, is that, is he somehow being influenced by the, by the, uh, by the monolith? It, like, it, are we, are, are we saying that artificially created intelligence is the same as human intelligence and, and, you know what, uh, what kind of effect, like is how when you know when Bowman is disconnecting him is he in in effect killing him is he killing a, a being you know and it's this whole it's just this very kind of trippy thing that like you'll sit and, and think about for hours on end. Yeah, or, or I think about it from this perspective too. How is a tool? He's art. He's he, he's no different apparently than the bone that we saw in the Dawn of Man, right? And when he fails, that's that's the failure of the tool. That's the failure of technology. Almost like saying that, well, you know, the tool has got may have gotten you this far, but it's not the be all end all. Like there's still you know there's still part of the human the human mind that can be unleashed that can be evolved. And and because right after like Hal fails, we go into the whole the reborn sequence with the with the Stargate. So maybe that's what it's implying that yeah, Hal is is a tool, but tools fail, and it's up to the human now to kind of compensate for that. Maybe that that's just me. I don't know. I don't know. It, it's all it's all trippy. Um, so we can probably go on and on about it, but uh, let, let's let's move on to the uh, kind of legacy this film has. Uh, I think it's uh, some 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 uh, some more uh, what am I looking for? Some more like tactile legacy, something you could point to. Uh, it, it did it was nominated for some Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Director. 
uh, screenplay for both Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke. Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, Best Art Direction. Uh, it didn't win any of those, but it did win uh, special visual effects uh, for Kubrick, who was who was one who who was uh, awarded that. Um, uh, AFI loves this film. It has uh, been it has put it on many of its lists, uh, including the uh, both top one hundred uh, films of all time, the nineteen ninety eight list and the two thousand seven list. In nineteen ninety eight, it was at number twenty two, and in the two thousand seven list, it moved up to number fifteen. Uh, in their 100 Thrills, it was number 40. Hal 9000 was its number 13 villain. Uh, Open the Pod Bay Doors, Hal, was the number 78 greatest quote of all time. And it was number 47 in the most inspirational movies, which I think is an interesting choice. Uh, I guess you could see as, yeah, I guess you could see as an inspirational film. You know, like kind of humankind yeah. achievement, you know, kind of things like that. Uh, and of course, it is... AFI's number one science fiction film of all time. Uh, it made about $60 million uh, at the box office, which translates to about $394 million uh, in 2019 money, so pretty massive hit. Um, and But really, I think what, what the its true legacy is, it's its uh, influence. Uh, it pretty much influenced all modern, um, all modern sci-fi. If you look at modern sci-fi, I think there are two movies that uh that they pull from one is metropolis and the second one is 2001 uh i think you can see its influence in star wars uh in definitely in interstellar um uh, alien i think you'd see its influence um uh close encounters i think you'd see it like pretty uh, pretty much everyone steven spielberg lucas have both cited the film as big influences on them um ridley scott has also said the same so I think pretty much anybody who's a filmmaker that is that has you know dabbled in sci-fi has been influenced by this film. Oh, definitely. I mean, what's this was such a I, I, I don't know if I dare say groundbreaking, but it was certainly certainly influential to a lot of to, not just to a lot of filmmakers, but to the genre of science fiction itself. Um it almost just opened up a whole new world to what science fiction on film can be. And I think that's going to be its overall uh, its lasting legacy. Not so much the questions that it raises or the interpretations of the film. It's what it did for an entire genre of film. And that's something that is undisputed. You know, it's not something that we question or we wonder, oh, maybe. No, it's what it is. This film is, was such an influence on a genre. And that's like the biggest takeaway from 2001 is how it pretty much laid the groundwork for a whole genre of film. Yeah, and I mean, to me, this is, this is the, the Citizen Kane of, of sci-fi. Like, there's right. nothing that, can, that tops 2001. Like, there are movies that I watch more because they're more fun or that are my favorites, but as far as, like, the greatest science fiction film, I don't think you can say it's anything other than 2001. Right. All right, uh, so that'll wrap up our discussion on 2001. Uh, so before we get on, before we move on, I just want to say, I know that this episode is very late, it's several months late. Uh, we did have a lot of scheduling problems getting to this. Uh, we got a lot of stuff happen in, in our own personal lives and professional lives that kind of pre prevented us from getting to this one. Our other podcast, Force Perspective, was also similarly delayed. Um, so we do apologize for, uh, for our, um, 
fraudulently on this episode. Uh, we did not want uh, to be this this late with it, uh, and hopefully, our next episode will uh, we will be in a more timely fashion. Um, oh, and before we wrap up two thousand one, I do want to ask: Have you ever seen twenty ten The Year We Made Contact? I've seen the trailer for it because Alamo showed it as part of the pre-show for uh, 2001, but I have never seen 2010. I would give it a watch. It's not bad. It's a lot more, it's less mysterious. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a lot more straightforward. Like this is like, this is the plot. These are the people. This is their, this is act one, act two, act three. This is what happens to them. Like it's, it's, it's a much more conventional story. Um, it's more of an adventure story. Uh, but the ending is still kind of enigmatic, but the, the, the whole, the whole movie is much easier to understand. Um, it's not bad. It's, it's not as good as 2001, but it's pretty, it's pretty fun. I would, uh, I would give it a watch. I would recommend it. Um, so before we go, uh, just want to make sure you guys know that this movie is pretty much available everywhere on, uh, all digital streaming, uh, platforms that you can that you can purchase it on or rent it, uh, as, as well as home media. I own just a standard Blu-ray. Uh, I think whenever I eventually upgrade my TV and player to 4K, I will get the 4K restoration, which I've heard is ridiculous. Um, I also do own this on Laserdisc uh, from the Criterion Collection. Ah, very nice. It's one of my Criterion Laserdisc. Um, but yeah, uh, I would recommend the um, at least the Blu-ray because it does look really nice on a nice TV. Oh, I can imagine, especially seeing the the 4K on, on like a proper like TV screen too. I'm sure it's like a big with with the proper sound system too. Oh, I'm sure it's a great experience, just like what I experienced in the theater. And I'm sure you would uh, you would uh, recommend that if it is playing in a theater in like a, a for a special screening to go to it. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Nothing will beat the theatrical experience I had um, over the summer. Big ups to Alamo Drafthouse again for uh, for doing this for the for the big 4K restoration. Like I sat in the I sat in the front row and I had all those bright colors just flash before my eyes for 10 minutes, and it was uh, probably one of the greatest thrills I've ever had in my life. It was just it was so um, just so eye opening, you know. And, and and it kind of made me ashamed of myself for kind of not wanting to or being too lazy, I should say, to go back to this film and like give it a real like give it a real shot. But I'm. If I was gonna like, you know, rewatch it for the first time, I'm glad it was in this manner. All right, all right. So that'll do it. But before we go, let's find out what our next film will be, uh, and let us pull out our friend—not the Hal Nine Thousand, but the uh, RMG Nine Thousand, the Random Movie Generator—and see what it is going to pick for our next show. All right, let's do this. All right. And it has given us a result. And our next movie is... Okay. Um, <laughs> before I preference, before I say what it is, uh, I just want to say, I just want to state that this next episode is going to be interesting. Our next film is The Graduate from 1967. Yes! Oh, uh, okay. The That's reason I think one. this is going to be an interesting episode is... I don't like this film at all. Um, oh, and dude. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. <laughs> okay, okay. Let me I'm just, a huge let me fan. Wait, I think it's half a good movie. I think it's mm. half a good movie. 
but we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it to our discussion. Kind of something there, but there's a charm to it that I almost I, I forgive some of like the shortcomings in the second half, but um, but I think I get what you're, I get. I get what you're gonna say, but I love this. I'll get to that discussion, but it, it it will probably it will be the first time in the, in this podcast history where I will, and it's part of the essential films because it is a very important landmark film. It's a very it's a classic film. Uh, a lot of people seen it. It, it should be it should it is a movie everyone should watch. I just do not enjoy it, so it is something um, that we will definitely have an interesting conversation about. There's a okay, so. Real quick, in case people actually want to watch it along with us, and you know, before we do the show, there's I recommend there's there's a joke double feature that I would do, and then there's like a legit double feature. The legit one is do the graduate and do Five Hundred Days of Summer because of the theme that the graduate kind of plays into that that storyline, which is really good, um, really well done by Mark Webb, by the way. Um, and then the joke one I would say is do the graduate and then do Wayne's World too, just for that parody of the of the ending <laughs> that they that they did, which is so good. Um, so check all check those three out and then come back and watch us talk about the graduate. It's, it's gonna be a, it's gonna be a fun time. Yeah. So uh, I'm 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 getting ready for the hate mail, but I'm just uh, we'll discuss it next time. <laughs> all, all right. right. Uh, that'll do it for us. Um, Please uh, make sure to visit EssentialFilmsPodcast.com. Uh, email us at EssentialFilmsPodcast at gmail.com. Like The Essential Films on Facebook and follow at Essential Films on Twitter. And uh, please like, rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Uh, and Mark, uh, please let us know what's going on with Sports Perspective. Sure. Um, real quick, uh, you can follow me at SportsSky515 on Twitter. Uh, we're bringing back force perspective. Hopefully that's fingers crossed. Maybe we can do something this weekend. Uh, we got a lot of catching up to, um, I have been kind of going on little movie marathons as it late to catch up on everything I've missed. So I've got a lot to talk about when it comes to all the recent stuff. Um, I think next I'm going to try probably not tomorrow, but maybe Saturday. I might try to go see, uh, dark Phoenix and have that already queued up for, for Sunday. Um, I'm setting that bar pretty low because if Apocalypse taught me anything is not to really give these a chance anymore, especially after. And it sucks because Days of Future Past is such, was one of my favorite films. And now, like, they dropped the ball already once, and I'm afraid they're going to do it again. Um, just from, like, the just the with, with this movie having to be delayed so many times, it's just it's not a good sign, you know. And I'm staying off film Twitter because I don't want to get, like, their, their – um, What's what's the phrase? I don't want to get like their opinions kind of mixed in already. Like I want to form my own opinion before I start reading others' opinions. So um, I'll probably check that out Saturday, and then when we record for respective Sunday again, fingers crossed. Um, I'll have a lot to say about that. But we got to talk about Endgame still. We got to talk about um, Aladdin. I saw. We got I saw Pikachu. I saw Godzilla. Like there's there's a lot I uh, I've seen now in the last like week that I've caught up on. So um, I'm I'm pretty pumped to bring it back. Yeah, I, I, all I've seen is uh, Avengers. I saw Aladdin, and I saw uh, I saw Godzilla, and that's it. So I got to catch up. Yeah, I mean you're pretty good actually. Yeah, we'll see. I, I do. I feel like I need to, to catch up some more, but uh, it's just finding the time. Um, all right, folks, that'll do it for next time. Um, and uh, to quote uh, Mr. Hal Nine Thousand. I'm afraid this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.